0: Uh, uh, Angelica Quetions uh, here hello and welcome to Spurbs herbs episode 8. Today we're going to be talking about our first Ayurvedic herb Ashwaganda. Uh, also the Latin is withania somnifera sum- that's withania somnifera. And of course, as always, I am your presenter, Dr. Greg Sperber, so let's get into it. So today, uh, we I just want to remind you again, if you're an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as many others, are approved for California Acupuncture Board Continuing Education Units and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, NCCAOM, PDAs, or Professional Development Activities, at a very reasonable cost. Just go to our website and you can see those. I also want to mention, I have a new book coming out. It's going to be called Dragons in the Medicine Cabinet, Chinese Herbal Medicines Everyone Should Have at Home. Now, I'm not sure exactly when this is going to be coming out, but I am starting an email list. If you are interested in getting some information and want to know more about this book, please send me an email at drgreg, that's D-R-G-R-E-G, at spurbsherbs.com. Uh, and if you do that again, Dr. Greg at If you send me an email there. I will keep you informed and let you know what, what's going on. I might even give you—I will give you a special discount when it does come out. So please send me an email. Thank you very much. All right, so let's get into it. So, I, you know, one of the things I love about doing Sperbs Herbs is I get to learn so much about so many different subjects. I have always wanted to learn uh, about Ayurvedic medicine and, and I have, you know, I've read books, I've been adjacent to lots of activity around Ayurvedic medicine, I was, um, I've been part of developing Ayurvedic medicine um, uh, courses and, 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 and um, whole programs, um, but I, I haven't really done a deep dive into it and I really think it's a medicine that is about to explode. I mean, especially in America, there are so many yoga studios and so many yoga instructors. And it's, it's become so ingrained in, in uh, America, American society at this point. It's really interesting. I used to, when I teach the first course in, in Chinese medicine, and this was a program, whole program for your master's program. And this is going on, God, 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less than that. And I would ask, you know, um, I'd have some fun. It's okay. Who's the? Is there a lawyer? There was like every other course, every other class had a lawyer in it. Um, who's the engineer? Um, there's always two nurses. Who are the nurses? I'd go through all this, and then I go, okay, how many of you are yoga instructors? And a third of the class would stand up. Um, so I mean, there's obviously a lot of interest in in Ayurvedic medicine. I think because of that. there's a lot of people teaching yoga, which is Part of Ayurvedic medicine. And so I really think this is huge. I think there's a lot of th- huge interest in Ayurvedic medicine. So um, here I am. I'm doing a podcast about one of the most popular and commonly used Ayurvedic herbs. I mean, this is, if you say Ayurvedic herbs, this is probably the first herb that's going to come to most people's mind. Ashwagandha. Uh, so I'm, I'm preparing for the for this, and, for this podcast, and I open a textbook on Ayurvedic herbs, reading the monograph on ashwagandha, following along, understanding the functions and science about it. It's fascinating. It's interesting. Um, there's a lot of research on it, so it's, it's not always the best research, but there's a lot of research, so I'm, I'm interested in it. It's, I'm getting into it. And then it gets to a section entitled Ayurvedic Properties, and it starts to use a lot of technical Ayurvedic language and I can't understand a word of it. I mean, it's just, it's just, nothing. So, you know, when I'm doing these podcasts, I always look for that something different that makes up the first 15 to 20 minutes of the podcast. When I saw this language, I knew that this was the something different we were gonna talk about today. So that's what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna get into some of the more technical language of Ayurvedic medicine and get into it. And what I find fascinating as I go through all this, is how it's similar to and yet very different from Chinese medicine. So we're gonna we're gonna get into that and I'll probably talk a little bit about the differences uh, between the two. So so the first place we need to start now, usually when you start talking about Ayurvedic and I've read books on this and this is usually where they start is when they talk about the three doshas. We're gonna get into the three doshas. Don't you worry about that. But we're actually gonna take a step before that. We're gonna talk about the gunas. So gunas are, are and again, As my Chinese and my Latin, I give you the warning, my Indian is way worse than those. So um, if I mispronounce these, please forgive me. I'm just pronouncing them phonetically at this point. So the gunas. So these are three basic uh, qualities or prime attributes. So guna is translated as quality or attribute. And when we talk um, with capital gunas, there's three basic qualities that kind of underlie all of, of... um, Indian, uh, not just Ayurvedic, but Indian thought processing, you know, philosophy. So described by Fraleigh and Ladd, who's one of our, our major sources today, There, these are the three. There's sattva, is the proper quality of the mind, and is the principle of light, perception, intelligence, and harmony. And then there's rajas, or rajas, the principle of energy, activity, emotion, and turbulence. And finally, there's Tamas, the principle of inertia, darkness, dullness, and resistance. So one of those differences that I find super fascinating uh, between Indian thought and medicine and Chinese thought and medicine, in China, we have all these basic things to there. We we usually, uh, well, the Ayurvedic and Indian look at three principles all the time. There's some of that in Chinese medicine, but usually five is the number that we do and we're, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But what's interesting in Chinese, none of them are more important than any of the others in general. So if we talk about the five elements, there's not an element that's more important than any of the other elements. Uh, they all have their place and all have their strengths and weaknesses. I'm finding as I a, as a get into Indian thought, that's not the case. What's interesting here with these three gunas, sattva is clearly the most important of these three gunas. That is what we're striving for, is to achieve sattva. So that proper quality of the mind, principle of light, perception, intelligence, and harmony. That's what we're striving for. We're not striving for rajas, um, you know, activity, emotion, turbulence. We're not tamas, inertia, darkness, dullness, resistance. So there actually is a hierarchy. In a lot of, of Indian medicine, which which was kind of surprising to me. So we can take this work, Gunas, and now we, we I, I like to say it's not capitalized. And there are, uh, there are qualities that are applied to Ayurvedic medicine. They're more general in nature. And actually, they describe 10 pairs of qualities that can be applied to almost anything. And especially medicinal substances. So medicinal substances, Ayurvedic herbs, are classified according to these pairs of gunas and so this is different than the three primal gunas but um, very important in describing what herbs are and these pairs are uh, opposite pairs are heavy light cold hot oily dry dull sharp smooth rough dense liquid soft hard stable mobile gross subtle and cloudy clear so those are the ten pairs of gunas, leaving 20 gunas that we talk about when we talk about our herbs. So there are five elements in in Indian medicine just as there are five elements in Chinese medicine, but they're different. They're different elements and they derive from those three gunas that we just talked about Sattva, Rajas, and Thomas. So um, one of the, the different ones is Ether. Ether comes from Sattva. So that's that prime you know, thing that we're, we're trying to, to achieve. Fire comes from Rajas, and earth comes from Tamas. So we can see uh, where those three gunas are now applied to three of the five elements. Now we have two more. So air comes from between Sattva and Rajas. So in, in the five elements, it comes between ether and fire. And water comes from between Rajas and Tamas. So it comes between fire and earth. Which is actually interesting, you know, uh, between water comes from obviously the earth and, and is in between fire and earth. And herbs, roots are associated with earth. That makes perfect sense. The stem and branches with water. And the way they, they justify that is that's where the, sta- the sap flows. The water of the plant flows is in the stem and branches. And then flowers are associated with fire. The leaves with air because they flutter in the air as the wind blows. And the fruit with ether. And the C contains all five elements. It is the proto, it's the it's where the whole plant comes from. So now we get into those those three doshas that I was talking about. This is often called tri-doshas, tri meaning three. And and this is really important. So any discussion of Ayurvedic medicine looks at these doshas. And there the three basic types of human constitution. So all of us have these three types involved. And, and a lot of Ayurvedic medic medicine is Supporting and diminishing, and trying to balance these three basic types of constitution, and so the first of these is Vata, with attributes of dry, cold, light, mobile, subtle, hard, rough, changeable, and clear. You see, a lot of those are those gunas, those twenty, those ten pairs, those twenty uh, qualities. It is the most powerful of the doshas. Again, there's this hierarchy, which is interesting. So Vata is the most powerful of the doshas being the life force itself, the strongest to create disease. It governs all movement and carries both Pitta and Kapha. Those are the other two doshas. And it comes from ether and air. So those lighter elements. Pitta is hot, light, fluid, subtle, sharp, malodorous. So It smells soft and clear. It governs heat, temperature and all chemical reactions and it comes from fire and water. Which is interesting because in Chinese medicine, we don't see those mixed much because they they, uh, destroy each other. Finally, uh, there's Kapha. Uh, Just, you know, I haven't been spelling these, but um, Vata is V-A-T-A, Pitta is P-I-T-T-A, and Kapha is K-A-P-H-A, is cold, wet, heavy, slow, dull, static, smooth, dense, and cloudy. It maintains substance, weight, and coherence in the body, and it comes from water and earth. Now, these are the three basic types, the three doshas, and of course, those are important in in the constitution. But no one's pure. Well, I wouldn't say no one. Very few people are pure any of these. They're often in mixtures and uh, combinations, and it's about trying to balance between the three. That's that becomes really important. Just you know, I as I study this I'm not an expert I'm pretty sure I'm pitta and kapha I'm not vata um, because I have heat and I'm, I'm a larger guy so I'm, I'm dense and I'm cloudy and weight which is kapha um, so uh, pitta and kapha I'm not necessarily vata alright so that brings us to the next word that was in in this textbook and it was rasa and it was an interesting uh, word because I hadn't heard that before and it, it actually it translates as taste now taste we know in chinese medicine we have taste as well and so taste was uh, i think but it's really important in ayurvedic medicine it's it's somewhat important in chinese medicine i, I think in modern chinese medicine it's less important than it was uh in the past and um, certainly you know some practitioners are put more emphasis on it than others um, but it, you know we we What I've seen is most practitioners tend to put a lot of emphasis on the function of herbs rather than the taste of herbs in Chinese medicine. But in Ayurvedic medicine, it seems to be really important. So rasa can mean many things. Like I said, it's translated as taste. But it can can mean other things too, which kind of help explain the importance of taste in Ayurvedic medicine. And some of these other meanings include essence. It can indicate the essence of a plant. It actually can translate as sap. So that's important, of course, with a plant. Also, I love this one. It translates, and I think this is all the same translation, just different aspects of it. Appreciation, artistic delight, and or a musical note. So uh, this, uh, Frawley and Ladd say this can indicate a feeling and the beauty and power of the plant. And I like that there's this sort of, um, you know, aesthetic aspect to this taste, which we forget sometimes because we look at the technical term, taste. It also can mean circulation, to feel lively, to dance. And this is, uh, according to them, the energizing power of a plant's taste. So this, this word, rasa, is, is kind of a very deep word. So there are six tastes in, in uh, Ayurvedic, and there are six tastes in, in Chinese medicine. And, and for the most part, they're exactly the same, except for one difference. And I'll tell you that in a minute. So the first taste is sweet. And these derive from sugars and starches composed of earth and water elements. Sour, which tastes is, are the fermented and acidic tastes and are from earth and fire. Salty, of course, comes from salts and alkali uh, from water. And, and the elements are water and fire pungent, which tastes like spicy or acrid. And these come from fire and air. And we have bitter, which of course tastes like bitter <laughs> from air and ether. And the sixth one is astringent. And this is a constricting quality. of, uh, And it comes from earth and air. And that's the one that's a little different from, from Chinese medicine. Our sixth taste in Chinese medicine is, is bland. Um, no taste. And it's interesting because I read a little blurb on the bland taste in, in Ayurvedic medicine. And they say if, a, if an herb is bland, it has no, none, zero medical worth. Um, that it's the flavors that give it its medical aspects. So uh, they definitely do not have bland as one of their six tastes tastes and emotions so this is there's tastes are also associated with emotion so bitter is associated with grief and astringent is associated with fear and both aggravate vata so those are not good for vata sour is associated with envy and pungent with anger and both aggravate pitta and finally Sweet is associated with desire and salty with greed. And both aggravate kapha. So you start to see all these kind of coming together, the elements and the tastes and the and the tridoshas, all that coming together in this medicine. And then of course, it's very elegant in how it does that. Next up is virya or energy. And I love this. Virya is the energy or potency of verbs. I, I love that. But it's actually, it breaks down to only cons- it's considered heating or cooling in the herb. So it's either um, heating or cooling. That's what the energy means, varia means. So it c- pungent, sour, and salty taste in order for most to least. So in other words, pungent is is the is the most and salty is the least warming. So those are pungent, sour, and salty are considered warming. warming. Pungent, the most warming. Sour, the second. And salty, the, the least warming. Heating herbs can cause... Dizziness, thirst, fatigue, sweating, burning sensations, and they speed the power of digestion. So they're very good for digestion. They generally decrease Vata and Kapha and increase Pitta. And it has a fire energy, a fire element to its its aspect. Bitter, astringent, and sweet tastes are cooling and in that order as well. So bitter is the most cooling Estrogen is the second, and sweet is the least cooling. And cooling herbs are refreshing, enlivening, and promote tissue firmness. They generally increase vata and kapha and are calming and clearing to pitta and to the blood. And it has water energy. So really, we're looking at water versus fire, or fire between these two, the cooling and the heating. Now we're into a very interesting concept even when you when I read the 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 translation of this concept, I, I didn't understand it. is is nothing like we have in Chinese medicine, and that is vipaka, which is translated as post digestive effect. So after you eat them, what does it do? So according to Ladd, post digestive effects relate to processes of absorption and elimination. It's the final outcome of digestion, and it's interesting. This is a really important aspect of these herbs so the first stage of digestion is in the mouth and stomach moistening dominated by the sweet taste the second stage of digestion is in the stomach and small intestine it's heating dominated by the sour or acid taste and the third stage is in the colon which is drying dominated by the pungent taste and these stages again are kapha pitta and vada respectively so the first stage of digestion in the mouth and stomach is kapha, the second stage in the stomach and small intestine is pitta, and the third stage in the colon is vata. So the six tastes are reduced. This is, by the way, all a quote from um, from Frally and Ladd. The six tastes are reduced to three in their post-digestive effect, vipaka. Sweet and salty tastes have a sweet vipaka. Sour has a sour, a sour vipaka while bitter, astringent, and pungent possess a pungent vipaka. Sweet and also sour vipakas aggravate kapha while they alleviate vata. Pungent vipaka aggravates vata while it alleviates kapha. Sour vipaka aggravates pitta while sweet vipaka alleviates it. Pungent vipaka tends to aggravate pitta over a period of time. So. You can see as you're getting into, you know, your choices of herbs in Ayurvedic, not only are you looking at where the patient is now, but you're also, what do you want the herbs to do over time? And that becomes this post-digestive effect. It's very interesting to me. And I'm not sure I have it all, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. So herbs, particularly in the long-term usage, tend to aggravate the dosha whose Vipaka they possess. So sweet and salty substances promote salivary and other kapha secretions. Sour herbs promote stomach acid, bile, and other manifestations of pitta. Bitter, pungent, and astringent herbs increase dryness and gas in the colon, thus aggravating vata. All of these will eventually aggravate those doshas. Finally, another concept is the karma of herbs. So we've all heard of and probably use the word karma you know uh, and and at its root its actual definition means action or work and there's a broader connotation of an action and its results which makes sense that's sort of the way we use karma in in, in the west is you know your actions produce results good or bad. In Ayurvedic the karma of herbs mean means its actions and desired results and so there are groupings of karma in Ayurvedic there's there seem to be over 50 groupings of, of potential actions, but a dozen or two groups seem to be the most common karmas of herbs. When we talk about karma when talking about herbs, we're really talking about the group of functions that it belongs to. So in, in Chinese, the way I would think in Chinese medicine, we talk about the uh, categories of herbs. So, you know, we have, you know, uh, clear heat herbs. That's that would be the karma. So you have these different types of herbs and their actions. So let's actually, now that we have that sort of an overview of, of Ayurvedic medicine, let's get into Ashwagandha and talk about that specifically. So as we mentioned, the standard species is Withania somnifera. That is the Latin for it. It comes from the family Solanaceae, which is nightshades. So nightshades are you know quite common and we have vegetables and things. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating because some people are, are, can be sensitive and or allergic to nightshades. So that's something to keep in mind. When we are talking about the herb ashwagandha, we are really talking about the root. There's lots of study going on on other aspects of the plant. And there are some definitely medicinal parts to other parts. You know, medicinal seems to be at this point some, some medicinal uses for other parts, but by far the main part that is used. And when we talk about the herb ashwagandha, we're talking about the root. So it's interesting. Ashwagandha actually literally means horse's smell. And we're going to find out that's because it smells like a horse it's not a pleasant smelling herb necessarily it has a horse's smell to it though some people say that we're going to find out one of the the functions of ashwagandha is as an aphrodisiac and uh some people say that this the ashwagandha um, even though it says horses horses smell is actually talking about the the uh, sexual activity of horses and and that's where it comes other names for ashwagandha are winter cherry, Indian ginseng you see, or Ayurvedic ginseng. Well, You'll see that sometimes. Ajaganda, Kanaje, Askan, poison gooseberry, which I think is a horrible name. I mean, who would eat anything from the planet if it was poison gooseberry? Chinese pinion is nanfei zuejiah. So nanfei zue Uh Amangura, amukurag. Asan, Asana, I, there's an alternative uh, Latin, Fasalius, Fasalis somnifera. This is an older term, it's not really used anywhere, but you may still see it in older books. So Fasalis somnifera is uh, the Latin, is old Latin for Withania somnifera. And then uh, Sam al Farak, Sam al Farak. Now my source didn't tell where that came from. It sounds Arabic to me, so I'm wondering if that's the Arabic name for uh, word for ashwagandha, samal farak. So ashwagandha is a perennial that is native to India and parts of Asia, Africa, and even North America. So it's got a a long, a a large uh, area where it's cultivated, can be grown. The root is long and tuberous, grayish yellow with longitudinal wrinkles and a soft center mass with scattered pores with two or three rhizomes coming off of the root. So remember, rhizomes are lateral roots. Uh, so those are kind of the big branches off of the root, would be the way to say it. And as we mentioned, they have a strong order, which explains the Indian name of horse's smell. Traditionally, ashwagandha is considered a rasayana. Uh, rasayana translates as a rejuvenant or restorative. So this means it is useful to promote physical and mental health, provide a defense against diseases and adverse environmental factors, and to slow the aging process. So this is um, very much where we're going to see this again, that is considered an anti-aging herb. So it's gunas, remember those are those 10 pairs, are laga or li- uh, light and snigda, which is unctuous. And we, we didn't use the word unctuous. Unctuous means oily, so it's light and oily are its gunas, it's its qualities. And then its tastes or rasas that we talked about are tikta, which are bit is bitter, kashaya, astringent, and madur, sweet. So those are the the uh three tastes. bitter, astringent, and sweet. Its vipaka is matter or sweet. So it is its post digestive is also sweet. According to and lad, Sweet pipaka, vidpakas, allow for easy and comfortable discharge of urine, feces, and intestinal gas, and also promotes the secretion of kapha, including semen and sexual secretions, which gets back to that aphrodisiac quality. It also alleviates vata and aggravates kapha. So this is interesting. It alleviates vata and aggravates kapha. Sort of underline a lot of what I've read is things that help eventually hinder and vice versa. So... It's an interesting thing because the reason why I'm bringing this up is because other sources later on in, in our in our thing say almost the opposite of this or something just that may be may mean the same, but it, it's translated in a weird way. So you just keep that in mind. It alleviates vada and aggravates kapha. So it's very, our energy is ushna or hot. So this is a hot herb, not a cooling herb. And remember, it's it's it is sweet. So that means that it is slightly hot it's not super hot in that kind of context So when you're looking at the, the tastes. Tissues, uh, it goes to include muscle, fat, bone, marrow, and nerve, and reproductive tissues. And the systems, it, it works on a reproductive, nervous, and respiratory systems. So respiratory, respiratory, sorry, I studied medicine in Australia, so uh, I say respiratory uh, now instead of respiratory. It just sounds melodious to me for some reason uh, its preparation it can be prepared as a decoction a milk decoction which I think is fascinating because that would never happen in Chinese medicine a milk decoction remember decoction is just boiling and when we just say decoction it means boiling in water so a milk decoction means boiling in milk it can be taken as a powder uh, it says here 250 milligrams to one gram um, but we're going to talk about dosing in just a little bit it can be a paste can be a medicated ghee or a medicated oil so remember ghee is clarified butter so you know medicated ghee and medicated oil to me are uh, the same thing it's just a different source of the, the oily uh, substrate so dosing and lad say so the dose is five grams of the powder twice a day in warm milk or water sweetened with raw sugar so again you know in chinese medicine we don't use sugar that often it's actually uh sugar and honey are, are considered herbal substances so we only use them when, when necessary though we do have honey pills so that, the honey does get used a little bit more often Sodium so another one of our big sources gives several doses he talks about a maintenance, dose of, a maintenance dose of 3 to 6 grams daily of the dried root powder or 300 to 500 milligrams of an extract standardized to 1.5% with anilides with anilides that we're going to find out are the um, key ingredient uh, the, and, and or 6 to 12 milliliters of a 1 to 2 fluid extract. So it can be used as an extract as well. For numerous forms of weak conditions, and uh, he listed a bunch, like 20 years, so I wasn't going to write them all down. We'd be talking about those all day. For numerous forms of weak conditions, he advises 10 grams of the powder three times per day. So, you know, the dosing on this seems to be anywhere from about Three grams daily to thirty grams daily, uh, and for uh, with various uh, differences in between for why and, and what you're using it for. So it's karma. The ashwagandha is karma. Remember that's its actions. Um, so it, and again, it some of these get into you know tactical terms. So the first one is vata pitta hara, uh, which in in the book that I got it from is all one word um, uh, reduces and, and it, it translates as, as, near as I can tell to reduces Vata and Pitta. There's Kapha Shamak, uh, again, one word, though I've seen them in separate words, um, equalizes or pacifies Kapha. So, um, and, and, and that's where we kind of get into, I, I mentioned there's a little bit of a discrepancy earlier, and I think it may be in the words, reduces, equalize, pacifies. So, um, it's interesting, uh, well, you know, again, not an expert in this. So, um, It's Balium, which means it's an immunostimulant, so it helps support the immune system. It's vajikarana, which means it's an aphrodisiac, and it, uh, a tonic, an aphrodisiac tonic. Uh, I guess there are some that are not tonic. It's an adaptogen, so that helps with stressors. Uh, it's a relaxing nervine, which strengthens nerve function. Relaxing is important. This is definitely considered a relaxing herb. It can be a postpartum tonic, so it helps support after pregnancy. An immunomodulant, so it actually helps with the immune system. Again, that's right in line with what we mentioned earlier, the volume as an immunostimulant. You know, immunomodulant just means it, it affects it. It is astringent, so it stops excessive discharges and secretions. It's a galactagogue, which means that it can help promote lactation. It's a diuretic. It increases urination, which goes right along with the, the uh, post-digestive effect we talked about earlier, and it's thermogenic. So it means it, it, it creates heat. So it's a warming, as we talked about, it's warming. Indications, again, according to Frawley and Ladd, it's indicated for general debility, sexual debility, Nerve exhaustion, convalescence, problems of old age, emaciation of children. So, um, children um, being emaciated or thin, too thin. Loss of memory, loss of muscular energy. spermatorrhea. So, this is an interesting word. Spermataria technically, from the Latin, means leakage um, of sperm. And you know, from a Western point of view, we never really have that. We never talk about that as a as a as a um, symptom and over the years i've always been curious about the symptom and i think i've i've landed on it you know please if you have any differences you know please let me know of opinion but where i've come with spermatoria is that means nocturnal emission or a wet dream um, and so that's where that is like it's an un, unconscious loss of sperm not necessarily that's leaky so that's the, um, one of the reasons for this herb overwork Tissue deficiency, insomnia. It's, it's supposed to be very nice for insomnia, paralysis, multiple sclerosis. I think that's an interesting one uh, because it, it does help nerves, so that that makes a bit of sense. Weak eyes, rheumatism, which is an old term for things like uh, um, for joint pain, and it can include uh, arthritis and things along those lines. Skin afflictions, cough, difficult breathing, anemia. Fatigue, infertility. It's used a lot for fertility, especially in combination with another Ayurvedic herb that we're not talking about today. Uh, And glandular swelling. So that's an interesting aspect of this. So according to Frawley and Ladd, ashwagandha is the best rejuvenative herb specifically for the Vata constitution, muscles, marrow, and semen. So that's quite a a Pronouncement The best rejuvenative herb. So of all the rejuvenative herbs is the best. It's often used in conditions of weakness in both children and the elderly. It's also one of the best herbs for the mind where it nurtures and clarifies. It is calming and promotes deep, dreamless sleep. So, it's a very good herb for that. And we see, I'm, I'm having, I you know, we're in the middle of uh, the, uh, the COVID, the coronavirus. Uh, situation right now as I record this and I'm having quite a few patients coming to me who are having anxiety and nervousness and things along those lines and I'm looking at everything they're taking and ashwagandha is a very common ingredient and a lot of the anti-anxiety preparations that are out on the market though the dosing in them in in my opinion are homeopathic dosing it's nowhere near um, for you know what we're talking about today nowhere near a therapeutic dosing but they're all in there, so it's interesting. It's definitely used in that in that context. Ashwagandha is good is a good food for weak, pregnant women. It helps to stabilize the fetus. Now, this one is an interesting one as a function because I, I read this and I read it's good for pregnant women, but when we get into cautions, you're going to find out we're going to talk about that it should be used in pregnant for pregnant women, unless supervised. And so I think that's important. There are some aspects, and we're going to talk about those aspects that. Can make this a little dangerous for pregnant women though um, if used properly and with expert advice is probably not an issue at all um, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes it also regenerates the hormonal system promotes healing of tissues and can be used externally on wounds sores etc that was a quote again from Frawley and Lett. so what are its chinese medical actions is this it, could this be useful in Chinese medicine? According to Michael Tierra, um, who is uh, an herbalist who does a lot of this, uh, kind of, uh, he, he does a lot of Western herbs and, and Ayurvedic herbs and Chinese herbs, and he often compares them. He had a great article on this. It's, it's in the bibliography and it will be in the notes. So, according to Tierra, ashwagandha has the following attributes it's warming, spicy, and enters the heart and kidney, it is a kidney young tonic calms the mind and relieves anxiety and insomnia and it dispels wind and acts as an anti-arthritic and anti-spasmodic so it helps spasms and it helps arthritis another source uh, the white institute of healing says it tonifies qi and wei qi wei qi is protective qi in chinese medicine it's important to stave off external uh, attacks uh, external uh, things Tonifies lung chi, tonifies the spleen, tonifies jing, or essence. That's a really interesting one because there are very few herbs that will tonify jing. Uh, especially, um, there's not many herbs that tonify jing, and there's only, as far as I know, only one other plant uh, source that will, will tonify jing. So most of them are, are animal, sor- animal sources and are now uh, under attack and should be used and all that. So... That could be very interesting if it does tonify Jing, and it calms Shen or spirit. So that's, when we say calm the mind, Shen is often translated as mind as well. So that's all in there. So this is interesting. I'm not sure when I look at all the functions of this that I necessarily agree that it tonifies Wei Qi and Lung Qi. It does seem to be very good at tonifying spleen and tonifying Qi, and I can certainly see where it would tonify Jing, though I'm not buying that wholesale because that's such a rare occurrence. Um, but I am—I'm not sure it helps with the lung chi and the wei chi, um, from what I read. But it's—it's it's interesting to keep in mind as we, as we look at this. Uh, I, I want to write—I I, want to read a, a passage from Michael Tierra about this because I thought it was an especially important one in these in this day and age, and I—I like it. I agree with it quite a bit. So uh, most tonics. This is Michael Tierra talking. Most tonics, like ginseng, require special growing conditions and several years to develop their tonic properties. Ginseng requires seven years, minimally. Uh, The more years, the more expensive it is and the more it's desired. Ashwagandha is unique as a tonic herb in that it is exceptionally easy to cultivate and is ready for harvest after only one year of growth. This represents a very real consideration. That if ashwagandha were used more, it would relieve some of the threat of extinction from the wild of other highly popular herbs such as wild ginseng, Panax quinquefolium, quinque, uh, golden seal, Hydrastis canadid, canadensis, suma, fafia paniculata, and lady slipper, Cypripedium pubescence, for instance. This is not to say that any tonic can be substituted for each other. But too often, because of excessive commercial promotion, people are induced to overuse and just as often misuse certain endangered herbs for purposes that another more common herb may be even more effective. And I think that's super important. It's one of the things that I, when I look at ashwagandha, I'm, I'm hit with that this is an easy to grow, very common herb that's all over the place especially in those places we talked about in, in India. And it's such a powerful herb. And it, you know, my, my take home from this whole Spurbs Herbs episode is that maybe I need to be looking at using this a little bit more often. Um, I think it has some really fantastic properties and uh, could be really interesting in, in some of the cases that I'm seeing, especially now, when I'm, uh, as I was mentioning, with anti-anxiety and insomnia that I'm seeing a lot of right now. So comparisons of ashwagandha to others, according to Tiara, Tiara, Michael Tiara, ashwagandha is better than renshen or ginseng uh, or standard ginseng and Dong dongshen, codonopsis. Shen is often used as a cheaper alternative to renshen, though I got to be honest, it's been used so much that way it's not, it's, it's still cheaper, but not much cheaper than renshen. Um, definitely cheaper than good renshen uh, or ginseng. So uh, it is Ashwagandha is better than Ren and Dong for calming the mind, relieving arthritis, and building sexual energy. So that's that's a real big positive there. Ren and Dong are better for low energy caused by digestive weakness. So that's an interesting. So if you are, um, it says digestive weakness, so we would say spleen qi deficiency. So if you have spleen qi deficiency and low energy because of spleen qi deficiency and, and issues with digestion. Renshin and Dongshin are better. If you need to calm the mind, relieve arthritis, or build sexual energy, then Ashwagandha is probably better. It can be used in cases where Renshin is too stimulating or hot and the patient appears nervous and fragile. So that nervous and fragile is important because remember that Ashwagandha is a, is a nerving; it, it helps the nerves. So that's very good in that sort of mode where you might be a little bit frissy sometimes. Uh, Huang or astragalus, which is also considered one of the big tonics, is a stronger immune tonic. So um, if you're looking for immune uh, to help support the immune system, Huang might be a better chance, better choice than ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is not a bad choice, and that is used quite a bit for that. While ashwagandha is useful for strengthening the female, female reproductive system in general, Dongwe or, or uh, angelica is especially beneficial in blood vacuity conditions, anemia, and irregular menstruation. So in those specific conditions, you want to go with Dong If you want to learn more about Dong I have a Sperb's Herbs episode uh, a couple episodes ago. Uh, I don't remember what it is right now. It's five or six, I think, all on Dong which is absolutely one of the most important herbs in Chinese medicine. So I think it's interesting to compare the two of those. So let's get into the science of ashwagandha. And, you know, here's the problem with ashwagandha. It is super popular herb in Ayurvedic medicine. And it has been very widely studied, especially in India. So there's lots of studies out there. So when I see that, what I do is I go to uh, the Cochrane database, and I look for reviews. So um, remember, systematic reviews. So when you have lots of individual studies, you're not sure if a study is, is well-constructed, is large enough, it actually shows what it says it shows. It can be really difficult. And you can figure that out. I mean, you just need to study them. But there's so many studies I would be spending weeks and, and months looking at all the studies to figure out you know, which ones were good, which ones weren't, all that sort of stuff. So in that case, you go to systematic reviews and you try to find a systematic reviews or meta studies. They kind of combine a bunch of studies to see if, if there's an actual uh, correlation and that there's an actual conclusion you make from several studies. And generally, they're considered very strong science in this. Very interestingly, usually I can find something like that. I went to the Cochrane database. There was nothing. There was not a single uh, review on anything to do with Ashwagandha. They had lots of individual scientific studies. Um, some of them were very interesting. Um, most of them, I say, were, were on the small side, but still a very, you know, still numerically significant, statistically significant. Um, so. I guess what I'm saying is there's not a study I can go, okay, this review says this and I feel pretty confident in it. Everything that I am about the list, there's lots of studies. They're a little bit scattered. They're not necessarily in the, in the, one of the things you look at as far as the strength of the study is where was it published? Is was the journal, a strong journal with big, you know, with strong peer review, um, all those sort of things. And there wasn't anything that like just jumped out at me, uh, you know, when perusing these hundreds of studies that I looked at but there were common themes. And so these are, um, you know, according to, to Sodi, another one of our big sources today, and his book was written in 2014, so it's, it's relatively recent. He has a list here, and I think it correlates pretty much with what I saw. So I've listed that. Don't have individual studies on this, um, but uh, these were kind of generalized, uh, you know, foundations, you know, were, were um, summaries of what we saw in a lot of the studies so it is anti-stress and anxiolytic so anxiolytic means that it li, anxiolytic actually literally means lytic means splitting and uh, splits anxiety so it's an anti-anxiety stuff uh, that's that's one of its major functions is uh, anti-anxiety or anxiolytic it's antioxidant uh, which in today's day is still i guess somewhat important but it's not as important as it would have been a few years ago anti-carcinogenic which means it helps cancer and there's been there's a lot of studies on cancer the problem with those studies in in regard to ashwagandha is they were looking i saw a lot of studies but they're all on different cancers and you can't say just because it helped with one cancer it helps with another cancer so there weren't there wasn't a, a build-up of of which cancers it was good for and which types and how it works Though they, some people I, I did read that um, they think it might be anti-angiogenic which means that it helps prevent um, blood flow to tumors uh, but uh, there I, I feel like there needs to be a lot more research in that thing but there's some some interesting possibilities there it's anti-inflammatory that's a huge one anti-aging it's cardio neuro and nephroprotective. so that means it helps the heart helps the nerves and helps the kidneys um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the word protective because they don't, it's not specific enough to me. So just because something's cardioprotective, it doesn't actually tell me what it does with the heart. So, I'm, uh, But, you know, as generally, we saw some, some uh, support in that. Thyroid stimulating. So a lot of people said that it helps thyroid. And it's actually an herb that you should think about in hypothyroidism. So I thought that was an interesting one. And another one that I saw quite a bit was anti-diabetic. It's actually used quite a bit in treating diabetes so that was a an interesting uh, one as well so those are pretty strong the thyroid stimulating anti-diabetic not conclusive but relatively strong and finally as we've talked about earlier it's immunomodulatory which means that it helps uh, uh, the immune system uh, and we know it helps it stimulates the immune system so these are all uh, like i said lots of scientific studies kind of showing this stuff i wouldn't say anything's particularly conclusive at this point but some are stronger than others. It contains a lot of uh, compounds, general compounds that we, we see in, in our herbs. So for example, alkaloids and lactones and saponins, which are um, very commonly in these, these uh, helpful herbs. Um, I, I'm going to talk about them, but you know, alkaloids include isopelotirine, I Anferin and withanine, 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 those are the alkaloids. Steroidal lactones, including withanaloids and Uh, uh One of my sources said that withaferins were actually types of withanaloids and that those are the, the main key ingredient here. We're going to talk about that in just a second. There's saponins, including uh, uh, cytosindoside 7 and 8. And iron, it's actually fairly high in iron, which is, is interesting. I'm, I'm always a little concerned with iron in in herbs and vegetables because it can be bound easily in fiber complexes and not be absorbable. So I, I want to know more about the fiber contents in this, um, but I, I, and I, I didn't see any sources on that at this point. So as I mentioned, as I mentioned, withanolides withanolides seem to be the key active constituents. They seem to be sim- similar to ginseng's ginsenosides, um, so those are considered the active ingredients in ginsengs. And and so a huge. Uh, there are two main uh, withanolides, both steroidal, which are, are withaferin A and withaferin D. So again, yeah, you know, this to me is a snapshot in our current thinking about this. There's There's always more things to discover in this but this is where we're at currently but those are the the big contents um when i when i saw things on what do these with afrin and with analoids do you know the lot of the the research the studies that i said were kind of general in its function so i didn't think it was useful for our our conversation but uh you know specifics so Drug herb interactions: There are some concerns. Um, several articles, papers, and papers state, with minimal in vivo evidence. So in vivo means in life, in, in people. Um, it, but with expert opinion, in some animal studies, that should not be uh, ashwagandha should not be combined with benzodiazepines, barbiturates, and other sedatives, thyroid medication, or immunosuppressants. So with, so we know ashwagandha is an anxiolytic; it helps anxiety. kind of calms the nerves. So that's what benzodiazepines do. Um, Those are uh, like Valium. Uh, They calm the nerves or anti-anxiety. Barbiturates are sedative, um, so it calms the nerves. So the idea is if you combine them with those, then uh, you can have uh, an exaggerated response to the point where it could be dangerous. Uh, If you over-sedate with barbiturates, uh, that is – barbiturates, when they were more widely used, was the number one cause of – of overdosing death in the United States. So um can be quite dangerous if we, we increase the effectiveness of barbiturates. Uh, it should be used shouldn't be combined with thyroid medication. As we said, this is very useful for hypothyroidism and, and it at least a little bit seems to be pretty strong in that in that uh, in, in that function, though I, I still want to see more science behind it. And so combining it with thyroid medication is probably not a good idea. And then we know that it is immunostimulant. It's, it, it increases the immune system. So it should be combined with immunosuppressants. If you're trying to suppress the immune system, the last thing you want to do is take an herb that increases the immune system and counteracts what you're attempting to do. And if you're going, why would anyone want to suppress the immune system? There's lots of reasons. And um, you know, autoimmune conditions are a big reason. And the other one is, is transplants. You definitely want to suppress the immune system uh, in, in uh, organ transplants and things like that thought it was great. Here's a negative, um, a positive negative. You'll see what I mean in just a second. Um, a study states that there was no in vitro interference with uh, cytochrome P450, 3A4, and 2D6. And the reason why I say it's positive negative is that's one of the biggest targets for drug herb interactions. It's, it's what I call one of the big three or four. And I say the big three or four because there's questions to whether there's a fourth one. Um, but cytochrome P450 interference is definitely one of the big three. And the fact that there is no interference between 3a4 and 2d6 in ashwagandha is very significant. 3a4 is by far the most common type of cytochrome P450. 2d6 is right up, is nowhere near 3a4, but it's I think the second or third um, biggest one, uh, most common uh, type of cytochrome P450. So the fact that there is no interference with those I think is significant when looking at drug-herb interactions, which uh, goes to say how safe this this herb actually can be and is. So let's talk about some of those concerns. So it is relatively safe. The uh, American, and that's that's across the board. Every textbook I read, a lot of the scientific papers said this is a relatively safe herb. Uh, The American Herbal Products Association gives it a safety rating of 2B, meaning it's not to be used during pregnancy without direction from an expert. So we go back to that, what I mentioned earlier, that this is... um, good for certain situations in pregnancy but a lot of people say don't take it during pregnancy and that's this and i I like the way they phrase this in the 2b is that it should be used uh, during pregnancy without direction from an expert so it's not saying you can't use it and i think that's a valid concern i think that's a valid balancing of the concerns around pregnancy is if someone knows what they're doing it's fine Um, if someone doesn't know what they're doing there's danger there. so Sodi states since ashwagandha is a mild depressant it should not be combined with alcohol barbiturates or other sedatives and as i mentioned earlier this is echoed by several papers and this is you know that's what we put just mentioned in the in the drug herb interactions the only difference here is we're adding alcohol to it alcohol is a is a uh, central nervous system depressant and so uh, probably not a good idea to combine uh, depressant with a depressant a mild depressant um and and i say it's echoed by several papers that's a a really interesting term um that i use and and echoed is yeah. a lot of papers say say it said something very similar to this but the evidence some of them didn't have any evidence and some of the others that did have evidence was more of like an expert opinion so not strong evidence that it shouldn't be combined but it's hard to get that you know we don't do studies to combine uh, a, a potentially dangerous herb with a you know potentially dangerous um, drug to see if something potentially dangerous comes out of it. That's just a, a, the type of study that would never get approval. So it's hard to, to get real scientific uh, stuff you know support for something like this. But I think it's probably a good idea not to to drink ac- excessively or take barbiturates when you're taking ashwagandha. Since and and here's the other reason why we have an issue with pregnancy: large doses of ashwagandha can be abortifacient, which means it can cause abortions. So it's, again, says, this source says it should not be taken by pregnant women. Um, again, large doses. So, again, if you're an expert and you have a particular reason for taking it during a pregnancy and experts um, knows what they're doing, I don't think it's it's particularly dangerous, but you definitely don't want to upend a bottle of it um, when you're when you're pregnant because you will lose the... the you potentially lose the pregnancy Uh, large doses have been shown to cause gastrointestinal issues diarrhea and vomiting Uh, that doesn't surprise me large doses of almost everything will cause those issues um and and this was an interesting there's a new article it just came out this year 2020 one article said several cases of liver damage induced by ashwagandha though there may be mitigating factors and in this this article there were five cases they discussed and they kind of, within the body, eliminated one completely, said it probably wasn't caused by ashwagandha. It was an, they were taking other herbs, and the other herb was known to cause some liver stuff. Uh, another one um, kind of dropped out of the study. You know, they're, the follow-ups, they're not entirely sure about that. And then the three others, they kind of said, well, there are other herbs, and there are other supplements, and there are other drugs. So, um, But when they stopped the ashwagandha, the liver went back to normal. So, you know, it's, it's there. I, I think it's something to maybe keep an eye on we're talking five worldwide and we're talking about this is you know the the one of the most important herbs in in the second most populous country on the planet you know we're talking a billion people um, I don't know if five cases five questionable cases are really of a, of a huge issue uh, in terms of liver damage and a lot of these people also by the way I should say we're we're doing uh, we're on uh, in the liver transplant database and we're, we're getting, uh, you know, already had weak livers. So again, may not be translatable into the general population, but it's worth having in the back of your mind when dealing with this herb. All right. Wow. We made it through. Uh, my time says we're just a little bit under an hour, so that's a good timing. I will get us past that point. Uh, I, I think, uh, Ashwagandha is a fascinating herb. I think it is. Uh, Ayurvedic is is a medicine that uh, deserves a lot more attention, and is getting it. There are associations developing, uh, you know, protocols for degrees and for certifications. There are a lot of programs. I was involved with a university that was developing or had and was um, uh, had an Ayurvedic certificate program. I was trying to develop it into a, uh, more of a degree program. And I was helping with that process. Um, so fascinating, fascinating herb. I, I personally, after studying ashwagandha, um, heard about it, knew it was an important herb, knew it was a useful herb. And now I just want to try it with some of my patients because I just think some of my patients, is, it's perfect for them. So I think that's a fascinating, uh, this, this is just fascinating herb. So that's our episode, ashwagandha or Withania somnifera. Next episode, Spurbs Herbs 9, coming at you in about two weeks, is going to be on Aya, or Mugwort. This is one of our Chinese singles, uh, single herbs. And, you know, it's an interesting herb. It's one of the most significant herbs in Chinese medicine. Not necessarily because of its herbal properties as used in herbal medicine. In other words, I, I have seen a, form, a few formulas with Aya in it, but not many. Uh, but because it's the main ingredient, Moxa. Mugwort Aya moxa. Now, if you're not familiar with moxa, this is super important. This is so important. And this makes this herb absolutely necessary to practicing acupuncture. So not herbal medicine, acupuncture. And the reason why, well, should I tell you? The reason why this is so important in acupuncture is because... We don't practice acupuncture. There's no such thing as acupuncturists. Ooh, what did I just say? What we actually do, if you look at the Chinese words, if you look at what it is historically, what we actually practice is acumoxa, a combination of acupuncture and moxa. They are un- inseparable, they are the same thing, they're two sides of the exact same coin. And it's super important. That makes this herb that we're going to be talking about next week, aya uh, mugwort, absolutely critical for acupuncture. We're going to talk about the herb. We're going to talk about why it's so important. We're going to talk about some acupuncture next episode. So come join us. Thank you. Spurs herbs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Swerber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle, Timothy, Robbins, Rogers. Rogers.